welcome, Hello. welcome back. Welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ella. And today we have a very special guest. Yes. As you've probably heard. <laughs> <laughs> so today we have with us Ari, aka the Turnip of Terror, who is a medieval reenactment and living history participant, historical weapons, martial artist, and armor enthusiast. He has been participating in living history and reenactment activities, both professionally and as a hobby, since 2006. And we are so delighted to have him here with us today. Hi, Ari. Hi, Ari. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Modern Medieval. This will hopefully be a fun fusing of our two projects. So, Oh, I yeah, was- I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Oh, yay. <laughs> Ari is also a trooper because he's woken up really early to be with us. So yes. thank him for that. <laughs> as long as there's coffee, I'll do anything at any time, you know. <laughs> I totally sympathize with that. Same. Yeah. Or chicken nuggets myself personally. Follow you anywhere. <laughs> so Elo, do you want to start off? Kind yeah. of getting us going? So our first question is quite a general question. How did your love for the medieval start? Can you pinpoint a moment or is it something that you've always been a fan of? It's really always been something that I've been a fan of. You know, when I try and think back to what started my interest in medieval itself, it's actually probably started in in fantasy. And as far back as I can go, I remember I was in the sixth grade when I was reading both like Larry Niven level ring world sci-fi. And I had read not just the Hobbit, but I had started on the Lord of the Rings. And I, in fact, I had to defend myself against plagiarism for doing a book report on the Lord of the Rings in sixth or seventh grade, because they didn't believe that I had read it because it was too (laughs) complex. That's impressive. So I had always, I'd always loved literature. I've always loved fantasy, everything from, you know, Discworld to Dragon Riders of Pern, like everything in between, if it sort of had a a fantasy medieval tinge to it or a sci-fi tinge to it, I just ate it up. So throughout school, I always found the medieval part of history very interesting. I found I had a hard time engaging with the actual sit down in class history part of it. I was actually a really terrible student in primary (laughs) school. I have learned to be a good student only as an adult. But as a kid, I, I found I would be voracious in my interests and completely ambivalent to the things that they also wanted me to learn. Mm. So as I grew up and went off on my own and started to do random fun and entertaining things, I find myself doing stuff more similar to like cosplay. You know, I dress up in medieval-esque clothes to go and watch the Lord of the Rings movies in theaters or the Harry Potter movies in theaters. Yes. And then I found myself falling into living history by when I got a job at the Ocean Institute in Dana Point, California. And it was 19th century reenactment because we were portraying the 1830s and maritime. It was effectively you were you were representing roles on board a tall ship to follow these programs that went with two years before the mast, the kids in California, Southern California, social studies read an abridged version of it because it was local, local history. And that really colored my interests outside of work because I found that there was this lens of authenticity that you could apply to what you were learning. So when my dad took me to England when I was like 13, 14, because I liked knights and things, I saw it all through the lens of a kid who enjoyed fantasy movies that were in medieval settings. And then I was able to come back to the things I had already learned in 
a more authentic, accurate perspective. And it sort of really, it made it even more interesting. I wish I had figured it out the first time around. (laughs) I feel like a lot of us found kind of an interest in the medieval, like yourself, through fantasy. Though I have mentioned on the podcast that I myself was likewise not the best of students, kind of threw out pockets and avoided the medieval, actually like reading it and things. I was much more invested in the uh, fantasy or like just fictional aspects. But it is definitely something that has always kind of been there. But that's great that you've discovered through work. It's always great when work kind of illuminates or takes a box, it flips a switch and you're like, oh, this is providing something for me aside from just like a paycheck. True. Oh yeah. That job did not, is not what I would call a paycheck type of job. We described <laughs> it as, we described it as paid volunteering. It gave you just enough <laughs> to eat so that you could then turn around and come to your next day at work. It, but it was fun. I mean, it was a wonderful formative experience, but it definitely was not about the paycheck. Fair. Um, a quick question before we kind of move on. What is the difference if there is between living history and reenactment? So that's one of those differences with sometimes no meaning and sometimes profound meaning, depending on who it is you're talking to. The big key between living history and reenactment in the perspective and how sort of I portray it is reenactment is usually focused on a specific historical event when possible, whereas living history refers more to the methodology that you're using to come up with some sort of interpretation of the past, especially through the use of material culture. And you can do both of those at the same event sometimes. And the best description is, so say you go to like a Battle of Bosworth reenactment where the main event during that day is the physical recreation of the battle. You have specific players who are required to be there because they're historical people who were at that battle. And you know who's going to win. You know who's going to lose. You realize who's going to get captured, who's going to survive, and who's going to die. That's a reenactment. You're trying to be faithfully accurate in recreating a specific historical event. You see it a lot in America, obviously, with reenacting of civil war and revolutionary war, where specific battles have to happen that way. But at the same event, you can also have outside of the battle reenactment or any specific interaction between two historical figures following out a script of what it was that had to happen. You have a living history encampment wherein you spend time in your 13th, 14th, 19th century outfit, and you're doing tasks that would be required on campaign, you're living in, you're cooking off food, and you're trying to do as much sort of internally to experience the past and to sort of get immersed in the past. And maybe you'll have people come through as part of demonstration, like an open encampment where the public can walk through and interact with you, either first or third person, or you know, it's completely closed and it's entirely an immersive event. And that would be more what I would describe as living history, where you're trying to experience the past and you're trying to put some sort of tangible connection to the past. Whereas reenactment is you're specifically focused most of the time on an event and you can reenact things that aren't specific events. A lot of times when you think about like World War II, they'll do reenactments what are called tactical reenactments, where the success or failure of the engagement is not orchestrated ahead of time. They'll go out and they'll they'll pretend to to fight. No, if you get shot at, you go down and you know who's gonna win, who's gonna lose isn't preordained. And a lot of people consider that reenactment as well, but 
in the most strictest sense, or at least in the sense that I have tended to gravitate towards, I would consider that to be more of a living history than it would be a reenactment. And we do this in the medieval era a lot in things like deeds of arms, where there were historic deeds of arms where we know who won and who didn't. I mean, it's all recorded. We also will get together and have deeds of arms where we don't know who's going to win. It's an actual tournament. The individual players are literally competing to see who will win in that particular sword fight. But each one of them is doing so with their techniques and what they're wearing and what are considered good and bad shots, all grounded in historical you know, literature or in effect books and the treatises written on historic martial arts. And then whoever wins is whoever was actually best at fighting that day. And again, that would be a history deed in comparison to a reenactment deed where we're saying, okay, well, this guy did win no matter what, and we're going to show you how he won and sort of play act it. Okay. Wow. Thank you. That was a thorough answer. (laughs) Completely agree. I didn't know the difference. Now I feel like I've got more more information, you know? Yeah, because as you were speaking, I was thinking of like colonial Williamsburg, which is revolution era correct like colonial colonies um yeah. in america and if that's like a living history project correct that like it would be it would be a living history it's it is a living history town and it's funny you mentioned colonial williamsburg back when i worked on the boats before i transitioned from regency era to medieval as my main passion we actually were talking about going out to and working at colonial williamsburg i was i was trying to get myself out there but that required moving obviously from california all the way to the other side of the country and right that was that was not feasible at the time but that was those the, the people at colonial williamsburg when it came to early 19th century living history and reenactment were like the gold standard that, and they still are oh i didn't know that i've never i guess really thought about the process or goals of the people who work there that's cool but i mean it's unfortunate i guess that you didn't get out there but now you have your current project of turn up of terror so maybe it was a fortuitous moment and it worked out (laughs) really quickly before that so like what would something like um medieval times be like you know where they like joust and everything would that be more kind of like a disnified living history because it is like the best i think it- are you talking about the dinner theater yeah well that's that's historical fantasy that there's nothing grounded in history and when you look at what they're wearing and the right. equipment they're using the closest thing they have to history is that they are on nights and have big pointy sticks and okay. the rest of it is all performance and if you Look at medieval times behind the scenes. They are their stuntmen and their actors, and the fights are choreographed. And it's like it's medieval WWE. It's not anything <laughs> historical uh, at all. You go in their gift shop because there was there was one in was it Anaheim. There was one I went to three mm-hmm. or four times when I lived there. And you go to their gift shop, and it's all it's it's wall hangers. It's it's fantasy. It's the stuff you find at uh, most of the stuff you find at like rent fairs and things. It's not. And, but it's not meant to be historical. Right. Sort of like the the pirate version is not meant to be a you know faithful adaptation of the Golden Age of Sail. It's you know it's pirates of Penzance on stage with food. It's not. And there's nothing against it. I mean, it's great entertainment, but that's solely what it is: is entertainment, medieval-ish. Okay. Entertainment. I just thought I'd ask because I think that a lot of people would maybe think that, like our listeners or something. Also, I I think it was the one in Anaheim. We went on a field trip in sixth grade Mm -hmm. when we were studying 
the Arthurian cycle. And it was a blast. I had a great time. And my team, my color, my night, whatever, won. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, having like the kids boxes with the chicken legs or turkey legs or whatnot was wearing the paper crowns. Yeah, it was very, it was a fun experience. Definitely entertaining. Um, I think I have a picture somewhere of, I think it was probably somewhere between 17 and 19 you know, they had the knighting ceremony and then you take a picture with the guy in the, in the robes, <laughs> tapping you with the sword. I've got that somewhere. It's a, it was a lot of fun. I love that place, but it's not green outdoor living history. Right. Okay. So yes, a good clarification. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess that kind of takes us, you know, so as you've been saying, you went from kind of the Regency era and you moved a bit further back into the medieval so what was the process of starting and developing and creating the Turnip of Terror? Like, what was that kind of trajectory? Well, when I was working on the boats, I had also done a little bit of the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is a, it's a large medieval living history type organization, chapters all over the, the world. And it's, it's a fairly popular thing. And so I had a taste of medieval while I was working, but... Obviously, my focus was on developing my impressions for the boats and obviously working and such. So then what ended up happening was I got transplanted to the Midwest via the Army. And here in the Midwest, I managed to make some connections with the SCA again. And then through the SCA connections, I found that there was actually a a fairly well-developed medieval living history community. And the community at the time was mostly based around Kimo, which is historical medieval, European medieval martial arts. It's the idea of taking the the fighting books that were written in the 14th, 15th century and recreating those techniques to be able to develop and, and redevelop a fighting system, medieval weaponry that is authentic to the time when those weapons were the tools of war. And I started to really focus on the historical authenticity and and the the hard living history aspect of medieval, whereas the SCA is a great organization, but it's also the standards are are fairly low. It's much more community oriented. It's, you know, the best attempt is their minimum standards. So they allow in to their organization a lot of things that are not historically accurate which is okay because it works for them that's mm-hmm. it's it's on the label it's okay. the anachronism is in the name it's not something to be surprised about but i i find that cutting my chops on doing professional living history where the representations we needed to make on the boats were by nature had to be completely accurate and authentic I found I enjoyed the authenticity of living history the way that the guys in the Hemer groups were doing it better. So I I, managed, I sort of pivoted and, and got interacted with them. And I myself am kind of a spreadsheety guy. I like to put things in order. And so as I was developing my living history kit, I found myself making spreadsheets to keep my mind straight on what was I developing now? What could I afford now? What would be the cost of improving it to this point? Uh, I also... Well, it's not spreadsheety. It helped in that, for instance, there's a retailer called Historic Enterprises, and and they're one of my favorite makers of medieval stuff. And they have all sorts of different types of fabrics in different colors that they can put on the same garment. But I myself am not terribly good at color, like in my head. I can't just visualize color. So I took a outline of a line drawing of a coder D 
And then I photoshopped it so that it would show me the texture and color of all of the swatches that historical enterprises had up on their website. And then I was able to see side by side what these two colors would look like on a garment. And it helped me make a decision about what I wanted to wear. Cool. Well, all of these things were just stuff I had made for myself because they helped me figure things out. And after people had figured out that I had them, I and a couple of my journals where I would write down ideas and thoughts and why I was doing what I was doing, kind of like creating a, a book of proving why my impression should have these items in it. Mm-hmm. They're like, these would be really helpful as a guide to other people. Can I, you know, show these to so-and-so who's working and struggling on the same thing you are. And so I started to share some of my notes around and it came to the point where I, I'm just going to put it up on a website. People can access it as they need to. That way I can stop sending emails every day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't actually every day. I wasn't nearly that popular, but it was it was enough that I, was, I put it up onto a, a blogger site. And man, I saw a screen grab of that in my folder one day. And I was <laughs> when we start is always different than where we are now. So I put a couple of these resources up. And then I one of the b- big first things I did was I did sort of a journal blog post war correspondency of the first big day of night's event I went to in that time it was Kentucky. It's in Ohio now. But it was a, a, a fairly large, probably one of the largest medieval focused living history timeline events. And so I had written a a summary of my experiences there and it just kept rolling forward. And I started to say, okay, well, these books have been recommended to me half a dozen times in 17 different Facebook groups. Maybe we should just create a list of recommended books. And so over time, the website has developed the, into a, what I, a medieval focused living history resource. And what I post is always meant to be resources for the living history reenactor to have better information and not be confused because it's a, it, when you get right into it you you want to jump into living history and the sea of things to know at once is just it can be very overwhelming and if i can help people be better at that then i then get to interact with higher quality living history impressions and so that works out for me yeah it's a give and take yeah and this is a bit of a pivot from that but I mean, the Middle Ages, right? The medieval is a thousand years of history. How... Yeah, that's inconvenient, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, like, how does that, um, when you go to a, like a, a, a meeting or some, or a reenactment or whatnot, is it like told before mm, this one's focused on the 13th century? I mean, of course, if you're doing a reenactment of a battle that will situate it in time, or do you have a mixture of kind of like early medieval with late medieval? And then like 13th century thrown in there. Like, how does that work? So it depends is always the least fulfilling answer. So it depends. What ends up happening is it's event specific. So say you go to an organization like the SCA. The SCA is pan-medieval, which means that any one event can have people portraying impressions from prehistory to 1500. And they just sort of all coexist because that's the game they play. When you go to a living history event, generally they pick a time and place for the event. So one of the big adages of living history is your your time, place, and status. That's how you really start to nail down an impression. You want it to be narrowly focused on where it's from, when it's from, preferably within a generation. So we think of maybe plus or minus 10, 15 specific date and then you try and make sure you know where you stand in the social order and those 
three decisions will really inform most of your material okay. culture choices. So events tend to do a similar thing with the exception of timeline events. Timeline events, what they do is each segment of the timeline is one of those narrowly focused times. So Days of Nights is the is my big mecca. It's the one I like to go to every year. And it goes and has a early medieval section of the timeline. And it has a high medieval section and a late medieval section. And then in each one of those sections, each camp is broken down to be a specific time period. So you know, you'll have an encampment that is focused on the Battle of Agincourt. So they've got 14, 10 plus or minus impressions. And then at the very early end of the timeline, you've got specific eras of Roman reenactment. And you've got you know, all the way through 13th century. And then during the presentations there, we actually take everyone in armor and go effectively like generation by generation. And you can see the progression of the improvement in technology of medieval armor. It's a fantastic event. I, I love going to it. But the timeline events tend to specifically focus on generally the time period of the event that or the group that's doing the event. So say you have a, a group who does primarily early 14th century reenactment, which is my... That's my end of the the playground about that. And so then they'll do, say, like our the Kansas City Sword Guild, which is the one that I got involved with. And and they're called the they've got a new name now. It's the historical martial arts group of Kansas City. The same general people. They have a about a century that they tend to bring their impressions in for, say, uh, their annual de- deed of arms. So they have a big tournament usually every year, COVID, thank you. But usually every year they have this big deed of arms. And so they'll usually take impressions from like mid 1300s to mid 1400s. And that way the technological advances don't become so great between two different contestants that it's sort of impossible for one to to actually score reasonable points against the other. So that's what you tend to see. You tend to see a narrow focus usually as small as 10 years, sometimes as big as a century for an event. And then everyone who brings their impressions to that are expected to conform to that time period for that event. Okay. So yeah, that sounds like there's a lot going on, but that does actually answer that question. What happens if someone like shows up and like, do you have multiple costumes? Like, could you, or not costumes, sorry, but like outfits that you where like have you ever shown up to an event in the wrong time period or do you, are you just so aware that you're going to an event that is in your era i guess so costume garb kit all those words are perfectly acceptable there are people <laughs> out there that will rankle at costume oh, it's not a costume it's historical garb or i mean effectively what we're trying to do is we're just trying to wear the clothes of people from a hundreds of years gone. So, you know, when I get dressed in the morning, am I putting on a costume? Well, in a way, if I wouldn't wear that to, if I'd only wear what I'd wear to work, then I'm effectively wearing my work costume. It's not that big a deal. The word garb costume, I use the word ensemble a lot. I don't know why I've fallen into that word, Fair enough. Yeah. but it, it all, it all counts. So yes, I have multiple impressions. They come with different costume to represent them. So generally I have a higher status and a lower status impression that focuses on the late 14th, early 15th century, though I have enough stuff to do a little earlier medieval. I've never gone to an event in the wrong costume because the event tells you what they want ahead of time. It's not Mm -hmm. a surprise. So you don't, I don't, 
know of anyone who goes and, and just brings a costume in with completely ignorant of what the event actually is. So that's not really an issue that most people run into. What does run into sometimes is that we'll end up, if it's not coordinated, we find an inaccurate distribution of social classes based on an, uh, the scenario. Mm. So we have, and we as the community have encountered situations where we go to do a an emergent event where we are portraying the, in, the encampment of a nightly retinue on campaign. And so the idea is to go out and camp and spend a weekend in the woods, set up your tents, manage the fire, cook food, things like that. And what happens is that What'll show up is there's there's seven people there, but five of them are knights and three of them are servants. And the distribution is a historical. Mm -hmm. That happens. And in those situations, it really depends on the group as to how you remedy that situation. Okay. Um, public access events that open registration to general people can encounter that issue where someone shows up without the right authenticity standard. But a lot of times what we do is we vet ahead of time through photographs. So for instance, Days of Nights, if you wanted to come and do a presentation at Days of Nights, you need to submit a photograph of your impression to the organizers and then they say yay or nay as to whether or not you can show up. And a lot of places do that. If you're bringing people in who aren't in your group and you don't already know what they look like, they'll usually vet you ahead of time. Because even quote open registration events are usually they're they're just fancy invitation events that people want you to come but they expect you to come to play the way that they're trying to experience that weekend okay i, I did that i wouldn't yeah. have thought that the vetting beforehand but yeah if you're trying to get to a certain standard then that totally Makes sense. I have one more question about this, Ella, before you add. Can I oh, ask you the next I've, got, I've got a couple <laughs> questions as well. <laughs> um, in regard to the like process, you know, earlier you were talking about the swatches and everything you were looking at for the, the garb, your ensemble. Is it made the way that it was made in that era and from materials of that time? Or is there flexibility in like the material? Because if you're emphasizing material culture, I would think. Maybe you want something to be made from the wool that is made from that process, or is that more flexible due to just access? Well, so historical authenticity is not a yes or no. There's kind of a spectrum. And the problem is that there comes a point where we hit this sort of irreducibly absurd level of granularity. So... <laughs> And there are people all over the spectrum on what constitutes historically authentic, because when you go to an online merchant, you want them to produce a garment that conforms to historical patterns. There's there's one tick box on the, on the checklist of authenticity. So some people will just cut tea tunics that are shaped like a T-shirt, but made to look medievally. Well, that's not an authentic tunic, you want something that is made from a historical pattern. So it'll have the correct gores and the correct curvature to it because how we make garments, just like any other technology has developed over time. So an early medieval impression will have a different knowledge base of seamstress or tailoring competency than maybe a later one. That's why we have some elaborate garments in the late medieval that just we're not able to have been thought of 500 years before because we just hadn't developed the correct sewing technique. There was a time when everything was pretty much made flat and you put it on your body. And then we started to try and make clothes that conformed to the curvatures of the body. So you have this progression. So yeah, you want someone to be able to tick box the 
historical authentic pattern. And then you go to materials. Okay, well, do we want it to be made from cotton, linen, polyester, wool? Well, what kind of impression are you doing? Because if you're doing an impression of late medieval in the Iberian Peninsula, you have access to far more cotton than you may have done if you are the exact same time period, but you're in Southern Ireland, where they may not have had access to the same level of international trade or material resources. Then you say, okay, well, everything was sewn by hand back then. So do we want to make sure that we construct the garment out of entirely machine stitching, or do we want to blend it, which is what most people do, is they have all exterior visible stitches hand sewn and then hidden seams machine sewn just for time constraints but then there are people who will say well that's not authentic enough everything needs to be hand sewn Mm -hmm. well then you go down to okay so i've got a hand sewn garment with natural linen thread and it's made from wool but you can keep ratcheting it down where okay well how was your wool loomed was it wool machine loomed well that's going to be different than if it was loomed on a medieval loom that's it's thinner it's not as wide it might not be as dense and okay so i've hand loomed it but how did you make your yarns was it were those done on a drop spindle and then at some point you're like well we don't even have medieval sheep whose fiber is identical to the fiber content of the hair pulled from a sheep 500 years ago due mm-hmm. to successive breeding of sheep over time. And so is anything authentic? You know, you get to this point where it's just like, it, it's almost authenticity nihilism. Like nothing can be historical if you go deep enough. So mm-hmm. most people just say, all right, well, it's got the right cut. It's from the right fabric. And it was sewn in the correct way. From all exterior visual references, it looks indistinguishable from a, that's a good standard. And and the high quality merchants tend to conform to that, you know, exterior hands sewing, authentic fibers with authentic color tones. So when you're dyeing in vats, it's very difficult. It takes a lot of expertise to get really deep colors. So you'll see in, you'll see a lot of really bright colors when you look at like visual resources from medieval clothing. And that has a lot to do with the third or fourth dye bat, uh, dye bat, dye vat, will yield paler and paler colors. So you get these sort of soft pastels in the third bath that is a much cheaper fabric to have dyed. So you'll see that on lower status impressions, these mm-hmm. softer, brighter, not necessarily brighter, but softer, lighter colors, these pastel colors, where deep jewel tones and bright, bold colors are more expensive because it takes expertise to be able to hold fast those dyes using period techniques and using the materials they had access to whichever time period you're looking at, you know, the generally with throughout the whole span of the medieval eras. So to answer with, with a whole lot, <laughs> yes, there are standards and we try to conform to them as much as possible. And that's not just in like fabric. So in armor or in tools, there's a medieval aesthetic where it, it, you know, you have to, you also have to compete with the fact that a lot of times, if you had something made in the cities by the guilds, that's what they did all day, every day. We, we have physical extant garments where stitching is indistinguishable from, or even finer than machine stitching. So at some point, if you couldn't tell the difference between a machine stitch and a medieval stitch, are your chunky hand stitches more authentic or do they just look less expertise than what you would get from a medieval market? And you know, we see these things where, you know, in the armor world, you know, we get these 
quote, munitions grade armors that are meant to be less expensive, but they usually have terrible shaping. And it's they're terribly shaped because it doesn't require expertise to teach someone to bang out a really cheap, ugly looking helmet. But then when we turn back around and look at what we have actually pulled out of the ground that was used in the past, even the munitions grade stuff still had to you know, get you through a battle. Mm -hmm. And so the shaping to it was usually superior. It was just the, they would use cheaper, they would use cheaper steel, cheaper iron. They wouldn't polish it as much. They'd paint it instead of bringing it up to a fine polish. They take a lot of the labor charge out of it to make it a munitions gear, but they wouldn't make it junky. So we end up finding things where people will make things looking junky. So it doesn't look, so it looks like it's lower grade because then, oh, it was handmade by a peasant in his backyard. Well, yeah, who, who had time to, to hand make something? in their backyard when they were working in the fields you wouldn't mm -hmm. you got it from you got your shoes from a cordwainer because you didn't have time to make your shoes you had other things to do so that's sort of the idea there is that we want everything to have the proper shape and form without looking like it was made in a factory mm -hmm. while at the same time acknowledging that the expertise of medieval artisans sometimes rivaled what we can get out of machining which is interesting I'm sorry, I've got a question. So how yes. many ensembles do you have? Is it, because um, I'm supposing this is takes, you know, weeks or months to actually construct a, a proper garb. So how long, how long does it take you? How many do you have? If that, that's I correct. have three impressions. I have an early medieval high, like middle class, though there's not really much of a middle class. That's a whole topic in itself, mm -hmm. but a higher status human type, peasant outfit for early medieval. And then I have both a yeoman and a gentry impression for the late 14th century, early 15th century. And my, my primary impression is 14, 10 plus or minus, you know, okay. 10, 15 years effectively leading up to and involved in the battle of Agincourt. It's sort of our stomping ground, the hundred years war. So those are the three primary impressions that I have. And how long it takes to put them together really depends on how good you are at making stuff or how good you are at making money because <laughs> I I'm a terrible seamstress. I don't I don't sew things together and trust me over from the time I was trying to make myself clothes for Regency era to trying to make myself clothes from the medieval eras I have banged my head against that sewing wall so many times that there's a <laughs> dent enough. in it, but I have never broken through that wall. So I buy most of the things that I, okay. I wear. So how long it takes to put those things together really depends on sh shipping time or if it's a custom garb, you usually wait about six weeks. But there are people who can put themselves together uh, an ensemble in weeks, you know, because they're good at sewing and they know what they're doing. They have practiced the patterns enough times that they're not scratching their head, staring at a piece of butcher paper, trying to figure out what they've done wrong. They can just go cut something out. And there's, there are a lot of people out there who have developed that skill of body patterning. It was uh, cutting out a pattern and laying it down and putting things together. I mean, that's a very modern way of putting together garments. A lot of times, you know, you'd go, especially, you know, in we're talking about like the late medieval, you'd go to somebody and they would lay the fabric on you and they would cut it out against your body. And that's how they would pattern it to you. It wasn't like they'd take tape measures and then hide in the back and sew something together. And there are people who can pattern a garment on themselves in an afternoon and, and power to them. I love it. I love watching them do that. There's a great video on it by the people over at Popular Urbanum, how she she literally patterns a hood against her own body on camera. It's, it's fantastic. Okay. But how quickly you can put something together really depends on your skill set and or your the depth of your pocketbook. Because the more you can spend, the quicker you can get something together. Of course. 
And um, on these events, when you go, um, I was wondering about food. Do you go, do you have, is that anachronistic or do you try and be faithful to the resources of the place that you're trying to live? What kind of, what are the rules regarding food and meals? So the rules are usually dependent on the individual event. However, like when it comes to guiding principles and what I think best practices are, I've done both. I have both done I have bandwidth to deal with, so I brought cans of soup and I popped them open and dropped them into a medieval bowl. And that mm -hmm. way I was able to survive. And so I, I was able to meet sustenance goals, but I didn't put any thought into it. And then we've done on the other side where we've literally planned medieval meals for each day. And we have brought things, you know, frozen in a cooler so that we could put them in a pipkin and, and cook them up. Most people aim for the immersion is the goal, like losing yourself in the past and feeling like you're spending a moment in a different century is the goal for a lot of people. And that requires all of our senses. So we want it to look and feel and smell and taste like the past. So the majority of people that I interact with are aiming for that sense of what did it taste like in the past? So they'll bring, they'll research medieval recipes and they'll bring medieval foods and they'll do ingredients that were not available in the past. So you, there's no generally no potato soup, but you'll definitely be able to have, you know, a parsnip and turnip stew. You, we try and access. And then another thing is it depends again, back on how granular do you want to get? So for instance, you've got what kind of meats are you going to bring? Are you going to bring beef or are you going to bring venison? Or are you going to bring chicken? Like what is going to show up? And then some of these big fancy feasts we've gone and there are people who have recreated some of the pageantry that we have read about in medieval feasts where they've made the quote cocktrice and you know they take a bird and they gild it in gold leaf and after it's cooked and presented at the table I and mean, this is documented that they would take like a peacock and they would cook it and then they would replace the feathers and gild the the outside of the roasted bird with gold leaf so that it was this magnificent presentation to eat so generally people aim for a medieval flavor palette when they're out and cooking, but not everyone does. And mm. I don't know of anyone, especially when it comes to food, there are a lot of people who will be like, ah, you should, you really should never do that when, especially when it comes to visual displays, because that's what the public sees, especially at a public event mm -hmm. where you're interacting with the public, like make sure that your aesthetic is on point. A lot of people don't seem to get wrapped around the axle too much on food because people need to eat and people have developed a, you know, entrenched flavor palette that is very difficult to switch over to the way medieval folk ate because the flavor is profoundly different. And so mm -hmm. it can be hard to get people to actually not starve to death trying to eat food that just doesn't taste good to them because it doesn't conform to what they're used to eating. So, and for instance, you know, I was out at Days of Nights once and I was having a rough morning because I was eaten alive by mosquitoes the night before. And I just went to McDonald's. Like, I was going to ask, like, you're from McDonald's. Yeah. I just went, I just, you know, there's, you know, we've done things where, you know, you're, you're still in your outfit, but we needed to do a or something like that. And you, you run down to the local Walmart, wherever you're at and you're, you're dressed in your, your funny clothes or you're at the drive-thru and it's, it's fine. But sometimes you just got to go like that time. Mm -hmm. I usually try not to leave events if I can, like, especially immersion events or overnight events. I like to spend the time there and, and feel that mm -hmm. sense of time but that one event you know i'd gotten eaten by the mosquitoes i went to a truck stop to take a shower right mcdonald's like i just needed to like i don't know yeah get away it was awful oh. find some calamine lotion 
Oh, That's understandable, though. And yeah. I mean, I guess that is one of the benefits of it being like a living history is that you can leave yeah. if you are yeah, at a breaking point. Um, yes, the modern world is always just beyond the trees as a little yeah. <laughs> for if things get too rough. Um, th- this is not on food, but just put, how do you decide or are you like designated your rank in society? Like, do you have to earn points to move up or like, how does that work? Well, there are groups where that exists, like that hierarchy exists in things like the SCA where they have orders of peerage and they have titles and they have awards, but those are all for obviously their organization. When Mm -hmm. it comes to living history, generally what we try to do, what we aim for is, to be fair, most living history organizations are just groups of people with like-minded interests. They're not, most of them aren't even formal organizations where it's like top-down hierarchy. It's just people who have a similar interest in the same time period. So they get together and do stuff. And generally your rank and status comes based off of the needs of the event and what what you personally want to put together because there's a plenty of independent reenactors out there who just, they don't have a group around them. The internet community is their group and they just put together their own impression based on their interests. And when it's just you putting stuff together, however you'd like, you can be whatever you want. So there's people out there who portray everything on the social spectrum. Now, when we do try and create events that are sort of group events or events that sort of represent not just the person themselves, but the environment around them. Mm-hmm. That's when we try and find that middle ground where let's make not just what we are portraying ourselves authentic, but the interaction between our impressions should also be similarly authentic. And those situations are, again, not usually dictated by one person who says, all right, you get to be this guy today. You get to be this guy today. It's usually based on what do we need to put together? Who has what outfits? And it's very collaborative. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with organized military reenactment because that's after my time period. I do understand mm-hmm. that most living history and reenactment groups that portray military groups, and you're talking about early modern and modern military groups, have an internal hierarchy where you earn rank through your participation in that group. I don't see that happening as much in living history groups. I do see it obviously in like the SCA where the the more you participate in the SCA and the more that you have invested in the SCA, the more rank they give you in the SCA. But when it comes to putting together living history impressions with like-minded people in a collaborative setting, we don't really see much of a rank structure. It's just someone will, you know, if there needs to be two nights there and there needs to be a couple, there needs, every night comes with three archers and two men at arms. People just sort of fall into those roles based on what they have available. And if you don't have a certain living history kit, then you won't, you just won't portray that role that day. And so you end up developing the kits for the roles that you like to play. And however, most groups also encourage you to have both a high and low status impression simply because you know, the, the numbers were, were in the favor of the peasantry. There were, you know, mm-hmm. it's the, the gentry and the nobility work the quote 1% for a reason. There's not, there's not a lot of them comparatively. And they were always surrounded by throngs of not nobility. And also there's something to be said for the fact that to accurately and faithfully portray the proper nobility, we're talking like counts and dukes and stuff, the amount of material wealth that you need to pour into that impression is beyond the scope of most hobbyists. I mean, they they literally were the 
CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, but times 10. They just had so much money that they could just put so much into what they did. Kings and high-ranking nobles would buy entire gilded suits of armor for one tournament, and then they would use it and break it and get rid of it. I mean, it's just insane what they could pour into things. So most people don't have the ability to reach that level. So generally, most people who are trying to be faithful to the impression that they're making don't portray dukes and barons and such. The most we see out there are usually people who portray the gentry, which is a term we use for those who are not noble, but not the peasantry. We're thinking like the esquires and the knights, people who are earning like 40 to 60 pound a year in, in medieval terms mm-hmm. in you know 14th century. And those are generally the highest ranking people we see than the really progressive guys who have a lot of material culture, who've developed a lot of stuff over time and can sort of prop other people's up. They tend to to fulfill the role of like the knight banner. But most people are knight bachelor or they're, they're yeomen, men at arms or peasantry. And that's just because it's easier to put together. And there's something to be said for a really on point peasant impression sometimes looks even more interesting than the peacocky gentry impression wow where did the name turnip of terror come from (laughs) okay so when i was (laughs) all right so this when i was sort of poking around the sca way back in california they want you to put together a persona and your persona is kind of related to your impression but different so you can have different impressions in the sca but you still have the same name and so you kind of always have the same persona your persona is what your titles and stuff are attached to there's a big big thing like a big focus on your persona in the SCA. a lot of living history outside of the sca doesn't focus so much on your persona but they do focus on your impression and it's kind of you separate the two a little more mm-hmm. so the idea at the time and i was young and thought it was funny was that I was going to be the executioner. And so that was my persona. And I had, at the time I was, I was doing a lot of research into like the actual judicial systems and crime and punishment. Right. I had done enough research to associate in vague English, Irish lore that the symbolism of the turnip was related to the underworld, to death, to, things like that. I mean, they were the first jack-o'-lanterns to, mm-hmm. ward, to ward away evil. So I was creating my arms for the SCA that involved a executioner's axe and a turnip. When I left the SCA to focus more on living history, I just, I don't know, I just really liked the the turnip itself. And turnip of terror was alliterative and it was interesting and it was just something to throw up at the top of that blog that I was starting to put all these things on and in in the beginning obviously the the website was never meant to be there was no grand plan to be this sort of universal resource it was just meant to be me talking about things I did and so I that's where the name turnip of terror came up and honestly the the turnip part was because I liked the iconography and the terror mm-hmm. part terror part was simply because I thought it was pithy and interesting so that stuck and it's stayed that way since i love wow. that it's also like one you remember for sure yeah, for sure terror. <laughs> yeah um, that's good never forget yeah because it's, it's very distinctive and if you don't know this kind of backstory of turnips yeah just, i feel like a turnip is a forgotten vegetable veg a lot you know people yeah. maybe think of radishes more yeah, true. If that, yeah. Um, well, when so, people talk about when I talk about turnips as food, people are usually like, "Ugh, 
but yeah, Turnip oh, Terror. Delicious. Oh, I love them. I they're, they're, I I liked them before all of this. Like I genuinely liked them <laughs> before all this. And it might have had something to do with again going back to tasting the the history. Is that mm-hmm. their turnip was a, a big part of colonial food too? So when we were trying to recreate food from the early 1800s, you know, you find things like turnips and you know, rutabagas and parsnips and such. Sure, you had things like potatoes, but yet to completely usurp the turnip as the vegetable of choice. And so I actually, the, the turnip itself was the thing that sustained people's caloric value for generations before the, mm-hmm. the right. starchy uprising. So I liked them before. I think they taste great. And, you know, when I was doing, you know, tournament fighting and such with the HEMA and such, you know, doing tournaments and, and deeds of arms and stuff, the turnip of terror, you know, strike fear in the heart of the enemy kind of thing that it just all worked out together. It was fun and they taste great. I've actually done, i uh, done a video where my friend reenactment Rick had done a turnip recipe. He had recreated it from a, a cookbook and then I remade it and I had to eat all of it because my family wouldn't eat any of it. <laughs> <laughs> was it good though? Like, did, or oh, I loved it. It was oh, it was good. buttery and cheesy <laughs> and turnipy. It was wonderful. But you know, my my daughter, you know, she grew up on snack packs, so she finds it too bitter. And you know, what's gonna do? <laughs> you can't force them. So uh, you've alluded to COVID, but we were just wondering how has reenactment and living histories changed uh, with COVID? Have you guys gone digital, or has everything been suspended? What's happening? Both. So. Events have been obviously canceled everywhere. No one, no one was doing events for an entire year. So instead of just giving up on it, the community has pretty much gone digital to the point where during the heyday of, of COVID, we were doing like virtual firesides where we were setting up our phones at, in our tents. We were in our garb, like we were doing events as if we were together, but we were digitally together. So we had oh. digital firesides. We've been doing lots of presentations, like the classes we would normally have given at events. So mm-hmm. you know, you go to a deed of arms and you got to fill up the day with something. You know, it's a five-day event. There's lots of tournaments and such, but there's also stuff going on during the day. So we get together and we have classes. We'll do symposiums on historical technique for this, or we're going to show you how I've developed the ability to make that or whatever. Hey, pick a topic. We can talk about it. And so these Classes have been happening online through Facebook Live events. I have done a number of presentations that I would never have had the opportunity to without. So I did a, I talked about the foundational garments that are involved in making medieval armor work. I mean, medieval armor doesn't strap on like motocross armor. There's a lot of clothes, like custom made clothes you have to wear underneath the metal to make it work. I was able to give a a short presentation on that to the Abbey Medieval Festival. I mean, I'm never going to make it to Australia probably, but I was able to reach these people that I would never have been able to present to before. And we've done you know, live, live Q and A's with people where they were able to ask questions while the lockdowns were happening. And my, my daughter was home full time and I had gotten sent home full time and I was doing, Oh yeah. Story time with uncle T and it was, I was taking fairy tales, custom, customary, normal, everyday fairy tales. And I was finding their origins. What was the first time it was written down? You know, a lot of people know that, that the little mermaid, the original version ended horribly with her, you know, exploding into a puff of sea foam. But there's lots of fairy tales out there that I had no idea what its original iteration was. So I would go and I I was researching the original fairy tales and I read them out. And so that was something that I did 
I put it across like medieval channels. I put it out to my daughter's Girl Scout group. I did it to a bunch of a couple like digital learning groups for kids that were stuck at home. And so we were able to really key in and take the things that we're interested in and package them in a way that like, for instance, I I'd need to go get insurance and probably an LLC to be able to go into a school and do a presentation on medieval stuff. However, during COVID, I was able to reach like six different schools and talk to them about the thing I'm passionate about. And so it was really nice. And I don't want to say that COVID was good, but there were a lot of ways that we could use the internet that mm -hmm. I think got sort of jump started. And my hope, and we've I've talked about this before, my real big hope is that we can take the best things we've learned after being forced through this mm -hmm. and be able to continue to use them in the future. I would like to see digital events and physical events continue in the future. I, I hope we don't pull back full from the fact that we're able to talk to each other. I want to see more. I'd like to see more live streaming of things that happen at events. Mm -hmm. So if there's a presentation happening at an event that you can't get to, I'd like to see people embrace throwing a, a phone up that has an internet connection and live streaming it to their local group. It's something that we could do for SCA events when people are giving talks. It's something we could do during demonstrations. I, when I go to Days of Nights next, which I think is going to happen this October, fingers crossed, you know, I plan to do, like, like I was doing reporting, so to speak, I'm not a journalist, but I would just sort of review the, the event for people who couldn't make it. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to take that a step further. And something I never thought of we had done all this is that I, I mean, I have my phone on me the whole time anyway, because I want to, it's the easiest way to take pictures and then hide it back in my pouch because it's just mm -hmm. small enough and my DSLR isn't. But, you know, I can take and do a digital day of nights demonstration and run my live stream around camp for 15 minutes one afternoon and then bring a whole bunch of people in in real time. And they don't just get to read about it later, but they get to come to day of nights a little bit with me. And I just never had thought about doing something like that before the, the virtual firesides where people were giving little demos and tours of their tent, which is something that I could only do if I went out to their event and was invited into their space. But now I was able to see the, the really fantastic stuff some people have done on the inside of their encampments, you know, hanging silk tapestries on the walls to make it look like a medieval knight's tent with the opulence that they would have expected out in the field. You know, these are great resources and I would like to be able to, to continue them. However, it certainly has made it harder to stay connected to people, even though we are online and we're all talking on Facebook groups, it's kind of gotten really sort of spread out all over the place. I mean, I I looked through it one time. There's like 43 different Facebook groups that I'm a part of because oh. everyone's <laughs> different niche has its own group. And so if I to to have a conversation with the community as a whole requires bouncing across different areas in, in even just one platform. That's not even mentioning the people who are on Facebook, not but not on Instagram and those who are on Instagram, but not on Facebook, which is kind of hard because they're connected to each other. It takes not being on Instagram is is difficult because I feel like Facebook makes it as easy as possible to do. But it certainly makes a whole lot of sense for the people who are not on Discord or are on Discord and not on Facebook. So there's all these places that you need to be and there's no one place you could put them. Like it's just there's no universal global confederacy of <laughs> living history, you know, there's just not an opportunity for doing that. No one's going to, you can't drag everyone into that. And then all of the 
differences of opinions and differences of focus that cause them to splinter out into these little groups anyway are still going to present themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think the hard part has been being able to have a through line of conversation with people because you go to an event and you're stuck there all, I say stuck there, but you're there all afternoon, you're there all night, you're there for a whole weekend. You get to have some of these long form, in-depth conversations with people and you get to have sort of an emotional friend-to-friend connection with people that it takes a lot more work to do online. So I feel like the the access to other people's events has gone up. Access to information has obviously gone up. I think that community on its face appears to have gone up, but I think the direct connection between people has gone down. And I hope that we can, my goal is to see if we can increase the ability for people to connect to each other and feel part of the family and community while at the same time not completely jettisoning all of the good stuff that came from being forced to interact with everyone virtually. Right. I'm glad there's been like a silver lining and yeah, hopefully things do kind of continue in this way that everyone has to adapt. And it is mm-hmm. great to hear that the community is strong enough, passionate enough as a community to have been able to continue on rather than you know, letting this be a barrier or an obstruction. Yeah. I, my hope is that inertia doesn't set in either. When things start opening up, there's two things, you know, the the doomsday thoughts, you know, you get those, those catastrophic spirals <laughs> of anxious thinking. When things open up and we can have events again, one, taking two years off, if we jump right back into the five-day packed schedule, things that we're used to doing, are we going to sort of pull a muscle by jumping into something that is too much that we're used to have doing have done and built up an endurance to do and then we're out of shape so to speak mm-hmm. and will that mm-hmm. negatively impact people's experiences and I don't want people to come back to an event and then it be too much and them to be like why did I even like this in the first place and sort of right. kind of quit or worse inertia to set in in the opposite direction where you have enough people that haven't done it for long enough that they're like man like what's the point of even going back I've, you know I've lived for two years in a perfectly healthy, fulfilled life that doesn't involve roughing it for a weekend. And are we going to have people who just never come back? And then yeah. four years, three years from now, see a whole bunch of people selling their stuff on the Facebook marketplace groups. And just a lot of people who just, they they were sustained by already doing it and it was habit. And maybe it's something they truly do love, but they don't come back from this because they just found other ways to prioritize their life. And mm-hmm. sure, I mean, you're not supposed, just because you want, once liked medieval stuff doesn't mean that you're locked in forever. It's not a cult. But I worry yeah. that there might be people who would genuinely have had a full living history reenactment hobby career, so to speak, that may have ended it prematurely because they just sort of got out of the habit. And that would make me sad. Yeah, yes. definitely. Hopefully it's the the kind of first where everyone's a bit too enthusiastic and excited mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. break the monotony of Zoom this. calls and being yeah. tethered to the technology because of isolation. I'm really hoping to see that the calendar will be over full with things to go to as everyone is just dying to get back out there. That's what I'm hoping yes. to see. Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed. At least here in the UK... I mean, it's yeah. not the same, but like the pubs and everything has the been mental. Like, oh my goodness, people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've heard quite a few people be like, "I'm not ready to go out and everything," but there's enough people. Mm-hmm. And I know that the uh, living history community is significantly smaller, but I, from what I've at least experienced and seen, people yeah. want to 
get out and kind of not, you know, return that nothing will return, but take back and embrace what has survived um, the year and a half, two years of nightmares. (laughs) Yeah. I'm hopeful. Um, We're hopeful for you. And I'm hopeful as well. So to kind of like wrap things up, we normally Mm -hmm. ask um, a a question. I'm going to kind of layer it a little bit with your um, interest. So it'll be like a two-parter. What is your favorite like activity or thing or aspect of uh, living history slash reenactment? And then alongside that, what is your favorite medieval fact? Let's All right. So the the first <laughs> the first part, my favorite part of living history, it used to be the immersion, like the idea of going out and chasing the high of losing yourself in time. I like to say, and I still like this part a lot, but I like to say that living history is one of the only ways that we have. When you study physics long enough, you realize that the only way you're going to be able to time travel is through pretend. And so I really enjoy that sense of just disappearing into the past. It's something that I felt when we were on the boats and you you get a good group of, of people involved and all you can see is the ship in the water and boom, it's the, it may as well be the 1830s and perception is reality. And for a little while, my reality was the 1830s. And we experienced this in living history as well. I've been to feasts where all you can see are tent walls and everyone around you is dressed appropriately and it smells medieval and it tastes medieval and people are laughing and talking and, and you just sort of, you have to convince yourself that it's still the modern age. And that feels wonderful. I really like that. And that was the original goal of a lot of what I've done, but I found that I have re-engaged with a love of teaching. Uh, when we were on the boat, there was a lot of teaching involved because it was educational programs. The whole idea of the living history thing was to bring students in. Mm-hmm. And I sort of recoupled with my really intense love of teaching. And I think a lot of that has come through this last year where it's not so much about experiencing the history. It's been a lot about repackaging what I know and providing it to people who are desperate for the information or at least just vaguely interested in what I'm doing. (laughs) And so being able to do these presentations, being able to talk to students, being able to talk to other reenactors who were like using this recomp time to redouble their research into their impressions and bring their authenticity level up. I really, really love the teaching. And so I'd say that my current favorite part of the medieval hobby here is being able to mentor other reenactors, being able to teach the public and being able to interact with those who are really hungry and interested in learning. Beautiful. Like, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's very inspirational for sure. Yes. Now, my favorite medieval fact has very little to do with anything that I reenact or any of my material culture. My favorite medieval fact is the non-existence of the Book of Three Imposters. And I'm not going to butcher the Latin. We okay. don't know Latin and I know I'll <laughs> say it wrong. But the fact that there was a book that didn't exist, that Da Vinci's codes level captured the imagination of centuries of medieval people just fascinates me. And I think what I like most about the fact that the Three Imposters as a concept existed, which for those who are not aware of what the book of three impostors was. It was a, a book that was supposedly written as a, the ultimate counter apologetic refutation of Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. It was supposedly the, the silver bullet to the heart of 
Christianity and religion in general. And in a time when our modern misconceptions of the past was that it was monochromatic, you were either a religious fanatic or, or you didn't exist. When we look at the past as more human and realize that people can be, are just like us nowadays and can be pulled in by the speculation of conspiracy theory and the fact that they were hungry for, e even within their own confidence of what they thought, they were still hungry for something that challenged that and indications that the bubbling of the thoughts and philosophies of the Enlightenment didn't just pop out of whole cloth, but were sitting there simmering for centuries before we were able to articulate them in a constructive manner. I think the Book of Three Imposters identifies the humanity of people in the medieval era in a way that little else does. It just shows that they, we don't think all that differently. Just because we're 500 years removed and we have Netflix does not mean <laughs> that we are somehow a completely different species from the people that we reenact in the Middle Ages. And I, I just think that's really cool. The, the things that you can interpret about human psychology and sociology from the existence of this, the idea of this book is just, it's amazing. What a An great... excellent answer, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun one. And like such a great kind of end note. Yeah, um, for sure. And I guess before we ask where we can like find you and... Or our audience can find you via the internet. Is there anything that we have not asked you that you would like to share or clarify or anything? See, that's tough because a couple of, of these questions that you've asked are uh, what I would define as cans of worms that are entire conversations on their own. Mm -hmm. we, we have skipped on the, the surface of a lot of things. And it's sort of the mentality behind the podcast I do with my friend, Matt, is we try and dive deeper into these topics that are either require more explanation or can be contentious in the living history community. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly specifically what did we not touch because there's so much that we haven't. And okay. so I could keep talking to you for, for hours. <laughs> if like. and, but I, I really, I do. Yeah. And I, ah, I'll, I'll come back whenever that sounds like a blast. I, I know that there's a lot. I have to remind myself that there are people who come into this who don't know anything at all about it or what they know about Medieval history is perfectly accurate, especially when we interact with academics. I love interacting with academics because I, I'm not a formally trained academic. I just do this for fun. And there's there's a great wealth of knowledge that I don't have access to that could benefit myself. And I like to think that there's a great tangible benefit to what we do in the academic research of the medieval eras as well. A lot of what people call like exploratory archaeology, you know, mm -hmm. people who who don't necessarily have a background in, in formal historical research, but they go out and they try things and they go, well, this is why it does or doesn't work. And that can then turn around and inform for future and further research. So I hope that I hit things at a superficial enough level that people who don't know what I'm talking about can understand and at the same time, give enough information that it's not just headlines. So I, I think that would be the only clarification I have is that if something went too high or too deep, too quick, it was unintentional. I I try and I scale it back, but at any time we want to clarify it more, I'm more than happy to talk again. If there's you anyone who has questions, I come in and stuff like that. No, honestly, you've done an amazing job. It was so concise and so precise and so also accessible. I think it was amazing. Yeah, I completely oh, well, thank you. agree. And this is a great kind of way to be like, if people want to learn yeah. more, they want to educate themselves or get lost in this wonderful... Thing that you do, where can they find you? 
what can they do to so, extricate themselves? <laughs> The, the website itself is thetermofterror.com. And for, for all that we talked about how memorable the name is, I've, I've gone and branded everything off of the same thing. So if you go on Facebook and you find Facebook slash The Term of Terror, or you go to Instagram, The Term of Terror, you go to YouTube, C slash The Term of Terror. It, everything is under the same names. And also I link to everything from the website. And the idea behind the website is that it it can serve. It's it's not obviously the only resource out there, but it can serve as a central resource for those who are interested in specifically medieval living history. And so mm -hmm. if you have questions about resources or recommended books, who should you buy from? That's the idea behind the website. And then, of course, you've got my own musings in the article role and the access to all my other social medias and such. So anytime you have a question, you can message me, email me. I find that Community involvement is part of the the big thing that I love about meeting with people and being able to talk to people and explain things to people. And so being accessible is obviously part of being part of the community. So yeah. uh, anywhere that there is a messenger service, I'll be able to respond to any questions. No one has to be worried about contacting me. I'm, I want to be here as a resource. So Amazing. Fantastic. So before Ello and I go through and sign off, we were wondering if you would like to Hang on, and if you'd be willing to uh, trumpet out with us at the end. Yes. <laughs> yes? Awesome. Okay, brilliant. So, hello. <laughs> so, if you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you have. You can find us, um, and if you want to listen to more, we, you can find us on Amazon, on uh, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, just type Modern Medieval Podcast. You can find us on social media. We've got a Facebook group and a page called Modern Medieval Podcast. We are also on Instagram and our handle is podcast.modern.medieval. And you, if you'd like to email us, please do, because it allows us to have wonderful guests. Mm -hmm. um, just type modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And then finally, you can find us on Twitter under the handle at medieval underscore modern. So yeah, please tweet at us, direct message us, all mm. those fun things. And our intro and outro music is by Mr. Joe Burton, also known as Trothgard, T-R-O-T-H-G-A-R-D. And you can find him on Bandcamp under that name. So once again, thank you so much, Ari, yeah. for this. Honestly. It's been, I like want to participate. I want to find one now. <laughs> like, I, this has been so educational as well as inspiring. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yay. And we'll definitely have to have you back. We'll have to For figure sure. out something. Okay. Be great. So until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ella. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>